On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about schools being closed. Students are losing a huge chunk of their year. We understand why schools can't open again, but is it okay that we just push them through to the next grade? The answer is no, and we're going to tell you what the answer is to this. There is an answer. We're going to explain it. We're also going to be chatting about the Commonwealth Games. The Hamilton bid is getting more refined, and we are hearing more about it. We'll have one of the people who is involved talking about what it means and how it's now being positioned. And Don Robertson joins us. We will chat about the NBA draft, drafts in general. Do we like the draft idea, The sorry, the lottery to the draft, or do we like it just that the last place team gets the first pick? Other stuff too. All that coming up. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Today, the Ontario government announced schools will not open again this year. Students are done for the year. Now, they still have some online instruction to do. It's not really over. But as far as going back to class or anything else, done. Done, gone, finished. And they said something else today that I found very interesting, if I understood them correctly. And that was, you are still going to have some online learning to do, but we're still going to have report cards that you're going to get which if I understand that correctly, you don't get report cards if you're not going to pass the students and push them on to the next grade. But I am struggling this afternoon after this press conference today to understand how it is that we could possibly believe that students that have missed this many days of school could be prepared for the next grade. You're supposed to, by decree, by law, by mandate in this province, you are supposed to have had a minimum of 194 days of school. That's the mandated minimum schools are supposed to have, 194 days of school. I didn't count every day because I don't know how many students have been when and where and PD days and snow days and all the rest, but we are shaving off June, May, April, and a big chunk of March. There's 80 minimum, 90, probably closer, maybe even 100 days of school. Let's say 90. So basically the school year, we've done a little more than half. And now we're going to say, we're going to do some online courses and then we're going to push you through and you're ready to go in the fall. You who just are in grade nine, sure, you've learned everything you need to have to go into grade 10. There's two problems with this, I think. And I'm happy to hear from you, by the way, 905-645-3221 or star 9900. There's two major problems with this. The first one is that teachers, if you recall, not that long ago, remember it was not that long ago, we were discussing the teachers showdown with the province, the negotiations, the threat of a strike. And what was one of the key points? What was one of the main things that was standing between a settlement and everything else? the plan for mandatory e-courses, because according to the unions, not every student does well online. Students from low-income families don't have the same opportunities. Uh, Not everyone has the same online service. Not every kid is as motivated, as driven. Not every kid has a parent or parents that will push them. Well, wait a second. If that was true in January and February and March, that online learning was unacceptable, that according to our teachers, kids will not excel with online learning. How is it now that we can say, oh, but they can do enough online to pass their course, to pass their year? Really? Really? That that doesn't seem to make any sense to me whatsoever, unless the unions were merely fighting for the sake of fighting. They'd never do that. So let's say that the I'm going to give take the teachers at their word that they really believe that the unions really believed online learning was unacceptable, unacceptable form of education. Well, then how do we simply say we are maybe a little more than halfway through the school year, the rest has been online learning, and we're going to say, go ahead, you're good, on to the next grade. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. None, none. And then what happens in the fall? So we push the students through now. You're in grade nine. You've had, let's be generous, two-thirds of your school year, but you haven't had all of it. 
How do we then put you into the next grade up, tell the teacher to begin teaching it, and that that teacher next fall is going to have to do a third extra, all the background stuff, all the backing up, all the filling in, all the foundational stuff that wasn't taught. How do you just, does this make sense to anybody? But we don't fail anyone. That's the problem. We don't fail anyone. It doesn't matter how you do. We don't fail anyone because heaven knows that would affect your mental health. That would affect your psyche. If we held you back, even if you're not reading right or you're not doing good math, well, that's not good enough. That's not acceptable. We don't fail people ever because that word has connotations now. So we're going to push them through. We're going to give them a report card. If we're giving report cards, it means we're passing them. And if we're passing them, it means we're pushing them along despite the fact that they have come nowhere close to the 194 mandated days. Nowhere close. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're chatting about the news today that the provincial government passed down that schools are now closed for the year. Done with COVID and everything else. They're not going to put kids back into class. And certainly we understand We understand because heaven knows if the province had said schools are open and one kid got it and one kid died, the outrage would have been not even measurable. So, you know, I absolutely, I get this. The difficulty that I have is the idea that we are going to take kids who have barely finished half a school year. As I said before, 194 days is the mandated minimum number of class days we maybe got a little past 100. And we're going to now take these kids, give them a report card, give them a grade and push them on to the next year and say, go to it. That is doing no service to anybody. Kids are not being helped by that. This is not something that is beneficial to kids who are going on to the next year ill-prepared for that. We may think we're helping them. We're not helping them. So there is a solution though. Because as I said before the break, they're not going to fail kids. That's not in the cards. That is now considered a psychological punishment. We don't want to ruin kids' self-esteem. So we don't fail kids anymore. So what do we do then? What's the other alternative if we're not going to fail kids and if they didn't get enough in their year this year? What's the answer? I'll tell you what the answer is. We go back to grade 13 for the cohort that is starting, that was in grade nine this year up until, so for the next four or five years only, we don't have to do it forever because kids in elementary school, I think they can probably make up the time, but the kids in high school, you bring back grade 13 and you make them then this gives them the opportunity to learn what they were supposed to learn and be ready then when they leave school to be ready to go out and do what they need to do in university or college or wherever else we need to do something to help these kids that we do to no fault of anybody. The the COVID thing is not someone's fault. Well, it might be China's fault, but anyway, letting it go on. I mean, it depends who you want to believe. I know Brian Adams said that and got in all kinds of trouble, but there's enough reason to believe the Chinese government didn't exactly do its due diligence. Not the Chinese people, the Chinese government, the communist government. It's not anyone other, not anyone else's fault, but it's just the reality that you must do something to help these kids. And the only con- con- conclusion I can come up with, the only solution would be bring back grade 13. And you know who would love this? Teachers unions, because it's more jobs for teachers. Students would get something out of it because then they would be prepared when they leave school. Parents presumably would be okay with it. The kids who don't know what to do right now, as far as leaving grade 12 and going to university because they don't know if they're ready, they'd be okay with it. This is the answer. This is the answer. You agree? 905-645-3221, star 9900. I know Dave is waiting on the line and has been waiting patiently. Dave, how are you? I'm all right, Scott. How are you today? Excellent, thanks. What do you think about all this? Well, one of the points uh, in your opening uh, Sarvo there, you uh, talked about the online learning. I did learn during this, um, where we're from, uh, Brant County area, we have a semester system. So my grade niners got half her year done and she's got four subjects this year, this, this second half of the year rather. And of course that's, what's been interrupted by the, uh, the fun times we've been having. Yeah. Um, what I've, what I've come to, we've come to notice is the teachers surely aren't, aren't prepared to teach online. 
it's so convoluted it's unreal and i have a a grade niner who's busting her ass to try and get you know what i mean trying to get good grades she's trying to yeah. do this and she has friends who aren't even bothering so so how do we push them through to grade 10 dave how do we push them through to grade 10 what's that how do we push them through to grade 10 then because they it sounds to me like they'll be ill-prepared a lot of them well, I, I keep I keep saying to my my daughter, I keep saying, no, when these po- when these uh, report cards come out, it better reflect the effort that some of these kids. And she's got friends that are also busting their butt, trying to get good grades. They're doing what the teachers are. They're trying to learn online. They're trying to stay up. I think in in our case, it was in case she went back to school, she'd at least be ahead of the curve. Yes, you know. But um, you know, the, the grades better reflect. They better not just give everybody a, a pass and move on with all the same grade because I think that when it comes down the road universities are going to look at what the kids did to get grades online during COVID. You know, it's a very real possibility that they're liable to look at that and say, well, did you sit at home and twiddle your thumbs and play video games or did you actually try to learn online and, and get a better grade? So Dave, and, let me jump in for a sec because your daughter is working hard to do this. So she may go back to school in the fall and be prepared to move on and do what she needs to do in grade 10. Yeah. But how much time is going to be spent from teachers then having to help the people and spend all the time with the people who didn't work as hard as she did so that she's now going to be stuck in this shuffle where they can't do what they need to do with her because so many kids are behind and all the background stuff is going to have to be done that they should have done what she did now. Scott, it's a very real possibility that her and all the students like her are liable to be half-assed tutors to do it. Exactly. There you go. That grade 13 to me is the way. And you know what? If there are kids who are miles ahead of the class by the end of grade 12, the schools can say, you're good, you're done. But for the, for everyone else... System, when there was a grade 13, they should never have got rid of it to begin with. I agree with you. I agree with you. I agree. I think kids are too young to go to university now, but that's just me. And I know they do it in the state. So everyone says, well, if they do it there, they can do it here. I think we had something good. And uh, we never should have got rid of it. Dave, I got to go to a break. I really appreciate you calling today. Thanks for doing this. Have a good day. Uh, I want to hear from you, Radley at 900CHML.com. Would you agree with bringing back grade 13? Not even permanently, not even permanently, just for the cohort that are in high school now, because they are the ones who are going to be way behind. Give them a chance. Give them a chance. And this is one way we can do it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Just because the world has stopped doesn't mean it's all stopped. The bid process continues and Hamilton right now is in the midst of this. Uh, That says some things have changed and this is what I'm talking about with the things are being sharpened. Rather than bidding for the 2030 games, which has been the, the way all along, Uh, which would have been the 100th anniversary of the British Empire Games here in Hamilton, which was the start of the Commonwealth Games, which was the big anniversary. We now appear to be going after the 2026 bid, unopposed. Meaning, if the city decides to get behind this and give its blessing, we are almost certain to get the Commonwealth Games in 2026, five years from now. It's not a long time. Questions that always seem to come up with this, though, are, is it the right time? Is it the right event? Do we want them? Well, what if the games and the idea behind the games were repositioned as an opportunity for recovery or stimulus after COVID? Here's the chance to get a lot of building going on and do a lot of things and make something happen after we come out of this thing. Lou Fraporti is with Hamilton's 100 Group. He is a spokesman there and a member of the board. He joins us now. Lou, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Really appreciated hearing that Queen song. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this kind of thing, what's going on now with the Commonwealth Games and with the bid, I think probably gets pretty much lost in everything that's happening these days. And I'm wondering, as I was thinking about that today, I was wondering if that's a good thing that you can fly under the radar and do what you do, or if it's a bad thing that people aren't fully engaged right now in the debate because they have other things on their mind. Well, I don't know whether it's good or bad. Uh, I think the reality of the situation right now is that uh, everyone has a great many other things on their mind. It has allowed us an opportunity to work hard behind the scenes, uh, getting things structured and arranged with a view to positioning it in front of council and otherwise when it's ripe and ready. Um, and there have been, it's really been an enormous amount of work that's been undertaken in the last few weeks on a variety of fronts to do that which has included us having to shell for the time being the Hamilton 100 moniker as being an entity that was created to pursue the 100th centenary games 
And while we're not dissolving or disbanding that, we've now created a new corporate entity to uh, house the 2026 games if, in fact, they proceed as a necessary step in the process. So the idea now seems to be uh, the change in, I don't know if it's a change in direction, but certainly the change in um, public perception or public marketing is here is something that if it's done here, can fire up the city's economy once the pandemic passes. Is that a, is that a fair description of where we are? Yeah, it is. And it, it presents in that regard as, as uh, an incredibly um, serendipitous event for the city and in, in it happening this way now. You will have seen, I think, um, the report in The Spectator that the mayor and city council have stood up a committee of regional business leaders to look at recovery. Um, and that will be very much on everyone's mind. One of the reasons why we're talking today is that the Commonwealth Federation had commissioned a very large report uh, by PricewaterhouseCoopers that looked to analyze the financial impact of prior games for the communities that host them. And that report will be made public tomorrow. Um, The preliminary takeaways from the report are incredibly important in assessing um, the the opportunity for Hamilton in taking on 26 subject to government um, support and approval. And those benefits range from very significant full-time employment um, the creation of significant infrastructure and legacy around not only sports, but transportation, the ability to create uh, an enormous legacy of volunteers, especially among young people, to develop skills that would be supportive of the games. We uh, will be in a position, I think notably right now, to work on a multi-year program in partnership with public health and with our schools on wellness and activities centered on the games leading up to 2026. Um, And those are among the many benefits that I think have both immediate and midterm implications for the region as we look to dig out from the damage caused by the pandemic. So here's the thing, Um, a stimulus package, if we're positioning it that by definition requires something to be stimulated and a stimulator, which I realize as I'm saying, this sounds more erotic than sports or business. So I apologize. Anyway, it wasn't meant to be a Harlequin novel. Um, but there would need to be money to get things going to begin to stimulate the economy here. And that always seems to be the hang up, especially in these times, Lou, where does that money to get things going come from, especially if governments are, if not tapped out close to it? Of course, clearly a critical issue. Uh, and there have been some developments in that regard as well. So one of the key steps for us in moving this forward has been uh, to get the preliminary support in principle from all levels of government. Now, we had secured this in relation to the 2030 bid, but in having to pivot, immediately began the process uh, in partnership with Commonwealth Sports Canada and other stakeholders to re- reach out to the two senior levels of government to begin that conversation. So uh, since the last time we spoke, Commonwealth Sport Canada has been advised by the federal government that they're supportive in principle of our pivot to 2026, which is a, a huge milestone for us. We're awaiting and looking forward enthusiastically to the province saying likewise. And when those two senior levels of government step up, as we're hopeful they will, um, that will then permit us to go to, to, to city council and city staff to talk about how we could finalize uh, a, a program that would integrate all levels of financial support from senior levels of government and then deal with the city's concerns. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lou Fraporti is a spokesman for what was the Hamilton 100 committee and would now be the, what, Ham- the Hamilton 2026 Bid Corporation. Bid, right? Is that, I've got it right? More or less right. That's okay. More, <laughs> I'll take more or less. Uh, <laughs> just before the break, we were talking about government money and money period, because this is always going to be the number one issue. And you had just said that you had spoken to the provincial and federal governments, had some kinds of assurances. And so now the city gets to deal with its concerns, which you can take it from there. Sure. So just to be clear, we haven't heard back formally from the provincial government yet. We're waiting to do that. But in relation to the city, we understood from the beginning that in pivoting to 26, we needed to take realities into consideration. One, we needed to, and we've done this now with Commonwealth Sports Canada uh, in in finalizing or near finalizing the sports program. So we're going to have fewer events, fewer athletes, uh, modestly fewer so that the the event itself is less expensive. Um, we are regionalizing some aspects of, of the program so as not to put all of the cost in the Hamilton region. 
Uh, what we're doing also is to look to partner with private enterprise uh, that would be working, for example, in the area of affordable housing and infrastructure to invest themselves in the creation of these assets so as to reduce the cost on the city of Hamilton and to, to deal with the issue of risk because one of the concerns here is, is downside obligation in the event that the games don't secure the revenue that we're proposing. There are private market alternatives where global insurance companies can underwrite that that we're exploring so as to eliminate that risk for the city of Hamilton. And in total, then, it'll be a more more modest, less expensive, we hope, as impactful event than the 2030 Games program would be perfectly suited to the current economic situation in a way of catalyzing global interest on the city of Hamilton, uh, our economy, soliciting foreign direct investment, getting large corporations to get engaged in an event that reaches over a billion eyeballs globally in the near term. And so the return on that investment and this is spoken to in the PricewaterhouseCoopers report, um, you know, generally is on average somewhere between $1 and $2 billion to the local economy. And that is a massive uh, opportunity for us in the region that uh, I don't think is going to be on offer anywhere else for this region for the foreseeable future. Lou, I, I hear what you're saying about certainly that you've talked to the federal government and that you have some assurances. And then I, I know that we've heard in the last number of weeks that, Uh, The mayor is going to be looking to the federal government to help out with the LRT. And more recently now with Hamilton's revenues dropping and the city 23 million or thereabouts, maybe double that in the hole that it's, he's going to be going to the province and the federal government for more and more money. And I wonder, do you worry when you put forward a bid at a time when there are so many other demands that the city is putting out there, so many other hands from the city reaching out that you're going to be competing with Hamilton for different things because I, I can't fathom that the either level of higher government is going to give everything to everybody. No, of course. And, and in fact, we're not counting on that at all. And I think it's important for your listeners to appreciate, as many of them will, that there's a distinction between cost uh, and revenue and impact. So there is, a, a, I think, a remarkable opportunity, for example, in the area of transportation. Yes, the LRT and a decision around that is a pressing concern, but appreciate that one of the key legacy deliverables for games of this magnitude is transportation infrastructure. And the games then present an opportunity for all levels of government to do more around transportation than would otherwise be the case. In relation to some of the other infrastructure spending, um, the, the, the demands in terms of, of positioning the investment permit an opportunity here for much greater return and participation on the part of the private sector because it's organized around an event that has global prominence that is understandable, that has brand implications for major corporations and for the country as a whole in soliciting interest and investment. And so the return on dollars spent in programming of this type that can also assist in areas like transportation and affordable housing present an unusual opportunity to get much greater return on all of that spend for a global lesser amount than would otherwise be the case. And and I would say lastly, look, Hamilton is going to be competing with other centers across Canada and other cities around the world. What else is there that presents the opportunity to hit a global audience this way about the the implications and benefits of investing in Ontario uh, and in Hamilton and the games of this magnitude? We have to sell our region. This is an incredible way of selling our region globally. It's not something that we've had the benefit of in Hamilton's history, arguably. And so I think were we able to put it all together, the returns to the community would be spectacular. I only have a few seconds, so unfortunately we can't go deep into this answer, but my understanding is that the 2026 bid would be unopposed. And so if the Commonwealth Games Committee is looking for a place to hold its games, is there any chance we can squeeze them for some money to help do that for them? Well, well, I can't speak to whether or not we're going to be squeezing anybody. I can say that they've been incredibly supportive and engaged with us in trying to make this happen. Uh, and everybody has been very flexible in creating an opportunity for the games to occur in, in, in Hamilton that will see a very significant financial and, and other returns for this region. So, um, uh, listen, we, we are huge supporters and fans of Commonwealth Sports and the Commonwealth Federation, and, and they are so interested and have been so engaged in working with the city of Hamilton in making this happen. It will work out, I'm confident, for everybody if we're able to put the pieces together. Lou Fraporti from the, I'm going to say it one more time, the Hamilton 20, well, you say it properly so I can learn it one more time. What, what's the proper name of the organization now? 
it's the uh, God. I can't even remember. So confused <laughs> me. But it's it's the the Hamilton Commonwealth Games 2026 Games Bid Corporation. All right, nice. Uh, hardly anything there. That's nice and short. We'll have to figure out the anagram or whatever it's called for that and uh, make it simple. We will have I'll, to work on it. Yeah. Lou for forty. Thanks for the time today. It's all the best. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. What is the name of that symphony? I, I got one text already from my next guest, guessing Bugs Bunny. <laughs> Indeed, it was in Looney Tunes, as many of them were, because um, Mel Blanc and the uh, the rest of the folks who did the Looney Tunes, they were, they were geniuses at making classical music into very familiar tunes. But um, no, Bugs Bunny is not actually the correct answer. 905-645-3221. Star 9900, what is the name of that symphony and who was the composer? That is your quiz question this evening to bring up your level of class and whatever else you want to say, decorum. Uh, As we ponder this one, the man who guessed Bugs Bunny, (laughs) not, not raising the class or decorum of the show, Don Robertson joins me now. Donald, how are you this evening? Hi. I'm fine. I I knew you saw the text. Whatever, just start to laugh. Well, he used to do that in for the sure. cartoons. No, for sure. That was uh, that was a well used symphony. Um, there were a lot of them, a lot of classical music pieces that were played in the Bugs Bunny and the other cartoons. But uh, no, the official title is not Bugs Bunny. <laughs> that's, that's, Although I that's do like the, the creativity. Growing, that's the growing up in Linden class that I show there. Well, there you go. Uh, Don Robertson, of course, the owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys of ComChoice Realty. He does all kinds of other stuff in Dundas. Uh, he also drives a tractor and cuts the lawn at Robertson Acres. And uh, have you been out this weekend or was it just too moist? No, I got it done. I finished it up Saturday. I cut the last acre and a half Saturday morning in the nice weather. But boy, at least it didn't snow. It snowed the Saturday before, so there's that to it. Well, you should have been out today. Today's perfect. Today's perfect. You can go out and do the edging today. A little windy. A little windy, and the fact uh, that you have four hundred and seven acres is probably a lot to uh, probably a yeah, lot to have takes- to do the edging. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, so, Don, we, um, today would have been had everything been normal world, not the world we're in right now. Today would have been the NBA's draft lottery. Now, the NBA has a draft lottery now, and the NHL has a draft lottery. NFL doesn't. Major League Baseball doesn't. They go the old way, which is you finish last, you get the first overall pick. Which way do you like better? I think the draft lottery has a lot of merits because there there have been teams in the past that purposely tank it to get the first pick. Your beloved Toronto Maple Leafs may have been guilty of that when they got Austin Matthews. So there is there is something to that. It's not beyond general managers. If there's a premier player out there to say, my best shot at keeping my job is end up last. So you take that away from them. Pittsburgh did it, I think, to get Mario. You know, they started playing their East Coast League team in the NHL. So it, sadly, it, it, uh, it's probably a fair balancing act. I think, though, when you look at um, Major League Baseball, the way it's constructed, they play, you know, 160-plus games. So it's, if you're that bad, you've got to be that bad for a long time in a lot of games. I don't understand the NFL's theory other than, you know, they don't play a lot of games, but they try and win and do the best they can. But... It's a, it's a great story for the number one overall because you might be number one overall, but you're not going to a very good team. Yeah, you know, I, I get, look, the, the television coverage of the draft is, is, can be exciting. I mean, oftentimes it's actually more exciting than the draft itself about who's going to win the lottery because you know who the players are that they're going to want to take and how it can affect a team's fortunes and, you know, certainly uh, that year, you're right, the year that, that Austin Matthews was in it or when Connor McDavid was in a year or two before. I mean, it's um, those are exciting things. And 
to me, the draft is great if your team does well in the draft. If you are the Pittsburgh Penguins, for example, or if you're the Edmonton Oilers, you probably love the NHL or NBA draft. But if you're one of the teams that somehow always seems to fall backwards, the draft is stupid. And I mean, it's, it's, it's always going to be that case. If you, you, you probably love it if your team has enjoyed success there, and you're probably hated if it hasn't. Well, I think the teams that have the most success in the draft, I mean, the first three or four picks are generally pretty easy to, pretty easy to pick on. And, uh, and everybody else, you know, you always love it when a team picks a guy 27th and they say, we can't believe this. We had him in the top three. Yeah. Well, you're the only team on the planet that had him in the top three, but God bless you for saying that for the kids. But oftentimes teams that invest and, and have skilled people win the draft. And I'm talking about their scouts, whether it's major league baseball or anything else. (coughs) Pardon me. I'm sorry, Scott. I, it's, it's the, it's the scouts and their staff that pick up the gems in the second and third round that end up being good NHL players. You and I, uh, over, you know, two or three glasses of tea could sort out the top 10 guys in every draft and every sport, but it's, it's the second and third round that generally show the success of the draft. The Montreal Canadiens used to do it very well. The Edmonton Oilers, who by virtue of draft lottery picked, I think three times in the first overall, and they've been in the playoffs once in the last nine years since they did that. So they don't yeah. seem to be particularly good at the number one pick, let alone the depth picks. Yeah, but think of it for a second here, and I just had to pull it up because I couldn't remember off the top of my head who else was in the mix. But the year the Leafs won Austin Matthews or won the right to get Austin Matthews, how different would the NHL look right now if he had if Winnipeg had won the draft and he went there, or Columbus, or or heaven forbid Edmonton uh, that finished fourth, or Van- the rest of them was Vancouver, Calgary, Arizona, Buffalo, Montreal, Colorado, any of those teams. The NHL is a very different looking place right now. The NHL, pardon me, is a very different looking place right now if the Leafs don't win that draft and one of those other teams does. Oh, without question. He is, uh, he's not, I don't think he's a generational player. I think McDavid for the Leafs is. He is. He's, he is for the Leafs, but he's certainly an elite player in the National Hockey League. And one or two of those guys on a hockey team can make an awful difference. But again, it's, it's championships are won with the third and fourth line. You know, that depth that you can Boston always have, right? They roll four lines because they've got four quality lines. But you're right. If Winnipeg get them or anybody else get them, they're probably right where the Leafs are. Well, maybe they're in better shape. The Leafs were scrambling to get in the playoffs. And they've got a lot of good hockey players. But they, sadly, they pay about six of them an inordinate amount of the salary cap room. Yeah, and the Oilers, by the way, that year had the second best odds to win that. Which again, now can you imagine how, again how different the NHL looks if Austin Matthews ends up with the Oilers, and you have one line with Connor McDavid centering with Drysidle, and then a second line with Austin Matthews. Now you may not have any money to pay anybody else; they may have to play the entire game. Nonetheless, that's a, that's a pretty frightening offense right there. It is, but it, but it also speaks to the fact, back to my point, which, and I don't have many good ones, so I'm going to hang on to this one. The Oilers are, 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 are in trouble because they have no defense, as are the Toronto Maple Leafs. The defense is their Achilles, Achilles heel, and when everything gets shut down and everything gets tighter and there's no time to think out there in the playoffs, you better have some defensemen that can do a job. I don't care if you can score six or seven during the regular season. You be, better be able to have some guys back there that can shut them down and give those skilled guys the pucks because every front-end loaded skilled team in the National Hockey League generally don't find success by winning a Stanley Cup. The same as the NFL. I mean, you can have uh, the best quarterback in the league, but if you haven't got anybody to catch the ball, or conversely, you can have four of the best receivers in the NFL and a great offensive line but if they've got you throwing the football, they're likely not going to win a lot. But I go back to the idea of the, whether or not we love the draft idea or you love the just the, the last place team gets in. And I, I understand your point, and I agree with you about the dumping games and tanking and 
you know, whatever else you want to call it to, to get those players. And, and I realize that there's a, you know, it, that kind of thing is antithetical to what sports is supposed to be all about, even though we know that teams will do it. Um, I don't know though. There is a, there is a part of me that says, yeah, but teams are still tanking just to improve their lottery odds. I mean, we've seen that. We saw the Buffalo Sabres during the Connor McDavid draft. The, the Buffalo Sabres were bringing up guys who had played junior high hockey the year before to try and lose. I mean, they were doing everything they could to lose. Now, it didn't pay off for them. It did. I mean, they got, uh, um, what's his face? Um, Jack um, Eichel. Jack Eichel. But they didn't get McDavid. They didn't get the big prize. So, I mean, in a sense, it paid off for them. But, I mean, Don, teams are still doing it, even though there is a lottery now. And so in think, the NBA, teams are still doing it. But I, but I think the consolation prize for the leagues themselves, like Gary Bettman is not going to put himself in a position where he has to find the Buffalo Sabres for not icing an NHL-caliber lineup. And that's what they'd be faced with. I mean, eventually somebody's going to say, these last two guys are shooting pucks in their own net. This is ridiculous. So the NHL, the commissioner has, all commissioners have the right to do whatever they want to do and discipline whoever they want in the best interest of the game. And in, in actual fact, that's what should happen. But if you want to bring in a lottery, it takes that out. So you can, rather than try and tank six of the last, you know, seven games, you're going to be in the mix for a lottery pick anyway. So why not put on a show for the fans? Because that's who you're cheating. You're cheating the fans. You're cheating the opponents. And if somebody's tanking a game, like if the Sabres are tanking a game and the Leafs are playing them three times in the last seven games and they need points to make the playoffs, they may beat somebody else who's got a playing teams that are all out. And so it really skews an awful lot of things. The lottery, which I think is, I'm not a big fan of it, but I think it's the best way to do it. Why not then let every team be in the lottery? Even if it's only a couple percentage points, just to, again, remove the incentive to tank. But now, you know what? If you win the Stanley Cup, you could still win that generational player because, you know what? That's the way the thing goes. It's a, it's a bit luck, a bit of luck here. We'll give you better odds if you're down lower, but let's let everybody in this and really take away the incentive to lose. Yeah, but holy crap. Can you imagine when Detroit were winning all those Stanley Cups and they had a 2% chance and they picked up the best player? Holy cow! There'd be yeah, yeah. there'd be an inquiry. I mean, they'd be burning, they'd be burning the streets down in Buffalo if that happened. Well, do you remember? Actually, half the, the, half the streets in Buffalo are always on fire. I think <laughs> North Tonawanda, East Chittawaga, yeah, with Irv Weinstein. Uh, do you remember the very first NBA draft though? What the the conspiracy theory was behind that one? So the I very first NBA draft. Well, it was for Patrick Ewing. He was the big prize that year. Patrick Ewing was coming out of Georgetown, seven-foot center, and the best player in college basketball by far. And the New York Knicks were horrible, and the conspiracy theory went that the NBA needed the New York Knicks to be good because they're such an important franchise. And so the New York Knicks, and you know how they have those giant envelopes that go into the drum, and when David Stern reached in one of the envelopes, had been frozen so that when he reached in, grabbed the frozen solid envelope, that's the cold one, that's the Knicks. And that was the theory, the conspiracy theory, long held that that's how the New York Knicks ended up with Patrick Ewing and won that lottery. Um, you know, and and could, could these things have been, I won't say rigged, but arranged over the years? I don't know. Of course they could. Uh, is there I, any reason to think they couldn't? I... I I don't know if it was, but they certainly could be. I mean, you hear the hue and cry in the NFL, the NBA, the National Hockey League, not so much baseball. But those three sports where it's a little quicker, baseball's a little more slowed and laid back, but you'll you'll always hear somebody like Columbus saying, well, New York got the call because they want New York in the finals because of the TV ratings. You know, you can see John Tortorella going, we had no chance anyways. Everybody knows they want the Rangers in the Stanley Cup playoffs. 
and the Chicago Blackhawks. The league would do anything they can to get him there. Tortorella would say something like that, and everybody else would think it. So it's not yeah. it's not just the draft lottery where those conspiracy theories come from. Yeah, the only reason I, I'm reluctant to believe in the conspiracy theory around the draft lottery, the only reason is because if they really had a conspiracy going, there is no possible way that Connor McDavid ends up in Edmonton. And there's no possible way he ends up in Toronto either, for that matter. He is somewhere in New York or Florida or Arizona or somewhere. They guarantee you that if you're trying, if you're if you're conspiring to rig the draft and you have Connor McDavid, he is going somewhere that he is going to get the most bang for your buck in the NHL, and that is not Edmonton. Well, do you remember the conspiracy theory on Mash? Share it. They when they had a a draw to spend a weekend with Hot, Hot Lips Hooligan. And the father drew the uh, card out with the name on it. He drew his own name. She was so happy, and he says, my card was taped to the back of the bowl. Yeah, there you so go. lots of ways to do conspiracy theories. Yeah, but I, if you're going to do it, you're going to do it to benefit your league or one of your teams. You're not going to put your generational player, quite frankly, in a market that I think most people in the NHL would say is one of your smaller, less notable markets. You're going to put it somewhere, you know, you're going to have them with the Rangers or as I say, with Arizona or somewhere that it really helps your league. And so uh, for that reason alone, I kind of go, all right, I think the NHL lottery is probably more legit. Well, I think, than, it, I think it's pretty legit. The second choice was Buffalo. What's the difference? Well, you could have had him not go to either one. I mean, somehow he could have yeah. slid down to number four. I mean, team number nine could have jumped up if you really wanted to rig it. So yeah. again, the fact that he ended up in Edmonton, it tells me uh, I'm, I, I have a pretty high level of confidence that they didn't, uh, didn't do this to, uh, to rig anything. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. Don Robertson is with us, uh, who here usually every Monday evening at this time, but, uh, Tuesday this week, since we were all off yesterday or most of us were. And Don, I don't know if you watched any of the 10 part docu series, the last dance that wrapped up on the weekend about Michael Jordan and the 1990s Chicago bulls and the six championships they won and all the rest that, did you see any of it? I didn't see any, I saw five minutes of it. So that's okay. Precluded me. Doesn't matter because the issue is this uh, documentary has, of course, spurred a massive online debate slash argument slash fight slash you're an idiot um, about who is the greatest player of all time. And depending on who you talk to, I have had a couple discussions with people and I think that they're wrong. Nonetheless, um, it, it, who is the greatest player? And I'm not even going to ask you who is the greatest NBA player. That's not the point. The point is when you get into a discussion with somebody about who the greatest player is in any sport or whatever, what is your criteria? How do you decide who the greatest player is? Is it just the eye test or is there some other metric you use? What do you do? Well, I think there's two or three. And, and again, it's generational because... <clears throat> Uh, the way the game is played in all sports has changed dramatically over the last few decades. Um, you know, quarterbacks have become a more influent, influential part of football. Basketball game has become more athletic. That's where um, Michael Jordan really lit it up versus Wilt Chamberlain. Uh, Bobby Orr was dynamic, Wayne Gretzky. But the things that I look at are a couple things. First of all, do they change the way the game was played? Were they so good that every other team had to mimic Michael Jordan and go get a player that would make, clearly would not be as good as Michael Jordan, but somebody could, that could perform similar tasks at a lesser, and hopefully better, but in this case, a lesser uh, ability, and Gretzky, did everybody, did every team want to find a Wayne Gretzky? Did everybody need a playmaker? Did everybody need a heavyweight to play with them? When Bobby Orr came along, every team in the National Hockey League needed a puck-carrying defenseman. So 
I look at a couple things. Do they dynamically change the way the sport is being played during their time? And are they good enough to win their team championships? And every guy I just mentioned was able to do that. Will Chamberlain was dynamic in his own right, but his a lot of his was size. He, I would compare the way Wilt Chamberlain played in the NBA is the way Phil Esposito played in the NHL. They weren't fast. They weren't the most athletic guys in the world, but they were sure the most, most effective during their time. Did they change, change the way the game was played? No, Esposito didn't. Chamberlain, it was hard to have the game change the way he played it because he was just a physical force out there. On yeah, the, court. the thing about Wilt Chamberlain, and I think, you know, a lot of people, especially because, you know, people today who are 25 or 30 don't really know anything about Wilt Chamberlain. Uh, and they so they poo-poo the idea that anybody other than Michael Jordan is the best player ever. You're an idiot. Uh, to me, it's who, how did you do compared to your contemporaries? And that's the only way we can gauge these guys. I can't, I can't see Wilt Chamberlain play against Shaquille O'Neal. I can't see Michael Jordan play against Jerry West. I can't see Wayne Gretzky play against Austin Matthews. So how did you do? What was your level of dominance against the players of your era? And by that metric, by that standard, Wilt Chamberlain was the greatest basketball player of all time. Nobody came close. He dominated in a way no other player ever has. And the same thing for Wayne Gretzky. You know, I, I saw someone today online, they were saying, who's the greatest athlete, period. And they said, well, first would be Michael Jordan, and second would be Barry Bonds, and third would be Wayne Gretzky. And it's like, okay, so clearly there is crack in your system because there was no player in any sport at any time, I don't think, who dominated the competition of his era the way Wayne Gretzky did. And, and his ability and skill have have lasted the test of time. I mean, he didn't play into his 40s, but it's hard to believe. And he's being very generous when he says uh, Ovechkin may catch him. That's, that's a long shot. That's Wayne Gretzky being Wayne Gretzky. But you're absolutely right. He dominated at every level. I remember the one year he won the scoring championship. And all the critics were poo-pooing it because, well, sure, he dominated, but look at all the assists he got. He's not a goal scorer. Next year, he went out and scored 92 goals. All right, well, that ends that argument. I guess he's maybe the most prolific um, playmaker and the most prolific goal scorer we've ever seen. Well, how many guys so, yeah, are he, in? He how many guys are in the Hall of Fame? Not exclusively, not from those Oilers or from those Oilers teams. Not exclusively because of Wayne Gretzky, but in big measure that a lot of their stats came off the stick of Wayne Gretzky, one way or another. I think Glenn Anderson might have made it anyway, but he certainly benefited from being on Wayne Gretzky's line at times. Yerry Curry probably would have made it anyway, but he benefited. Dave Semenko's not in the Hall of Fame, obviously. Um, there's a lot of those guys that you say not only was Gretzky the best of his time, but he made so many other guys around him the best of their time or among the best well, of their time. And isn't that, isn't that one, of the, uh, one of the key things that you have to look at? Do you make people around you better? And I think guys like Gretzky and uh, Michael Jordan made his teammates compete harder because they watched how hard he competed. And if he's going to go out and work that hard and he's going to do this and he's going to do that to win, who am I to not go out there and work just as hard with a third of the skill? Now, when you, when you talk about Anderson and those guys going in the Hall of Fame, make no mistake that the hot, talking about hockey, the Hockey Hall of Fame has a component that looks at your success and your team's success. Clark Gillies won Stanley Cups with the New York Islanders. If Clark Gillies doesn't play with skilled players on the New York Islanders, and you can say that about a lot of guys, and win those Stanley Cups, he's not in the Hall of Fame. Those Stanley Cups put Clark's, Clark Gillies in the Hall of Fame. Those Stanley Cups in Edmonton put a lot of those guys ahead of other guys with equal ability, and some could argue similar stats, into the Hall of Fame much quicker than they would have been if, had they not have won those Stanley Cups. Yeah, I just, um, as I say, the debate has been raging for weeks now, but it seemed to um, 
to reach a crescendo this well yesterday and today because the last episodes now of this show are out and and uh, i i say just the 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 certainty with which a number of people have argued that jordan is absolutely the greatest athlete greatest basketball player maybe greatest athlete of all time uh no i'm 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 not there. I'm not with you. I don't. I would argue Jordan's not the best basketball player of all time. He's among the greatest, but he didn't. Who do you, who do you think the best is? I've said I think he would be third, probably maybe fourth. I think that uh, Wilt has to be in that top one or two. I think you Magic can make Johnson? a case. I, I if I was drafting an all-time team. Of any era, the guy that I would take first is Magic Johnson because he made everybody on the roster that played with him basically an all-star. Uh, and the other guy is LeBron has to be in there somewhere. And and you know what? And then you go to hockey and it's okay, so Orr is in there and Gretzky's in there and that'll probably be one and two depending on what your taste is. And I don't think that there's a wrong answer. Um, but you know what, to, to argue that anybody other than Orr or Gretzky are the best player of all time, I, I, I don't even know how you do that. Well, I like, um, not to name drop, but Jim Ralph's analogy of that because I've heard guys ask him, and he looked at me one day, we were sitting there shooting the breeze, and the guy, he's, and he knew me, so he said, what do you think? Because I want to ask, but I said, well, I don't know if it matters. And Ralph, he says, that's the line I use. When you want to talk about Wayne Gretzky and Bobby Orr, what's the matter? Different eras, different positions, but I mean, but is if there a bad tell- pick? Is there a no, bad and if pick? you compare them so. to their contemporaries, if you compare them to their contemporaries, you can make the argument either one was so far ahead. Bobby Orr didn't have as many points ahead of his contemporaries as Gretzky did, but against other defensemen, he did. Um, you know, if you were if you were if you were doing an all time NHL draft, any era, any time, is there any possibility that in one in some order that the first two picks are not Gretzky and Orr? None. I don't think so. No chance. I don't think and, so. And, and and sadly, I think it's wrong. Probably a goalie isn't in the top five. <clears throat> Maybe not. But that said, if you go to the NFL or the NBA with Jordan, if you go to the NBA, is there a chance that Jordan doesn't get taken first? I would say absolutely. If it's an all-time draft, I think for sure. For sure, there's a good chance. People might be shocked, especially people today, but I think absolutely well, and, there's a chance. And the other thing is when you look at Will Chamberlain, and that's why eras from one era to the next are difficult because the training process and their athletic ability and the way they take care of themselves is far different now than the Chicago Blackhawks playing the Leafs and getting on a train and going to Montreal and playing an afternoon game and drinking ha- drinking almost all the way to Montreal and getting up and playing the next day. Yep. These guys take such good care of themselves now. Well, and the game itself has changed. I mean, Wilt Chamberlain played at a time when the center was the dominant player on the floor. Now you don't have a center. Um, so lots of stuff changes, which is why I say you can't judge, in my mind, you can't judge like, player to player it's era to era so when you're having your argument well i mean how do you argue tom brady but i'm sure someone will and they can probably make a good case but i i i would say tom brady but uh yeah jim brown would be right there and again if you're having an all-time draft do you take brady ahead of brown i don't know you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml uh, Don, they announced today or last night, I'm not sure, but in the last little while that in the NFL, they are amending the Rooney rule, which is a rule that was put in place a number of years ago that said that teams are required before they hire a coach to interview at least one minority. Now they're saying you must hire at, or must interview at least two minority candidates before you can hire for a coaching position. The goal being, the hope being that you'll end up with more black or other minority coaches in the league that has generally not had many of them. You think this is going to change anything? Do you think this truly will lead to more hirings of minorities or is this just a procedure now and we'll still hire the same people? 
I think they're still going to hire the same people. I think they, the uh, NFL hire the, the best people uh, to help them win. And I don't think they care what color they are or if they're a minority. I think if they believe that that uh, that, that coach can help them get what they want, whether it's offensive coordinator or head coach, they're going to hire them. And if they put that in place, and if they truly want to get around it, they'll just create another position and hire a minority if that satisfies. And that would be wrong. That's not the intent of it. But all you have to do is add an additional coach, add a second video coach or something like that to satisfy everybody. I think that hurts the process. I think they should hire the, the best people. And there's been all kinds of minorities that have been hired, and they do outstanding jobs. Well, they, you know what they do, John? That's Don? what I think. They, they do the same, I think, they do the same good or bad job as non-minorities, as white coaches. And, I mean, that, this, is the, this is the part about this that I, I think somehow we get this uh, patronizing sense one way or the other, positive or negative. There are fantastic coaches who have been minorities who have done amazing jobs in the NFL, and there have been terrible ones. And there have been fantastic white coaches and terrible white coaches. And, you know, I get fired. I, I, I think that it's very similar to what you just said. I find it hard to believe that there are too many owners in the NFL. Yes, they are old, generally white guys. I get that. And yet at the same time, they have made billions of dollars by being hyper competitive and that they're in this club. And yes, you can call it an old boys club. But the thing they want to be able to do more than anything is brag to their buddies in the old boys club that their team won. And so yeah. I, I believe, like you do, that you, they will hire the person that they believe, rightly or wrongly, it doesn't mean they're right, but rightly or wrongly, they will hire the person they believe is going to make them win. And could there be a racist person in there? Of course there could. I mean, of course there could. There could be in any area of work. I'm not sure, though, that making them interview two minorities now is going to make those people, if those exist, more likely to hire the person. Um, it, 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 it may, in fact, increase the skepticism if they're now hiring two and or interviewing two and hiring none. I, that it because, I agree That the process you. is just a show. That the process is yeah, just a show I, if they do that, yeah. I think, and now, now the, his name escapes me, he was quarterback in Edmonton, went on and played for the... Warren Moon. Yeah. Warren, Warren Moon. Moon. Maybe in that era, maybe in, with Chuck Ely in 1972, happened to come up and quarterback the Hamilton Ticats to a Grey Cup. Maybe in, in those eras, I think in 2020, that's passed us by. I think for the NFL to think that they have to, to mandate that you hire two minorities speaks very interview. loudly of what the of interview yeah. of what the NFL establishment think of their ownership group. And that's a sad day for the NFL. Yeah. I'll, I'll wait and see if this, uh, if this truly changes anything. And, and I think there probably, there may be a coach or two that ends up being hired just because of this. Although I, again, I find that hard to believe that a team is going to do it for public relations I don't think so. I think they all these teams want to win, and if they can find a great candidate who's white or black or any other color or female even, because we're starting to see some female assistant coaches, I think they're going to take the person they believe can make them win. Will this expose some of these minority coaches to the ownership or to the general manager who they may not have thought of before? I suppose. I suppose that could be the thing that comes out of it, and you say, okay, well, then if that's the case, then sure, there's a benefit. Um the worst case scenario to me out of this, Don, and we got to run, the worst case scenario is that some team decides they're going to hire someone just because they want to show that they're not racist and that guy who comes in doesn't do a particularly good job, although uh, I say they could just as well be the opposite. But And then everyone goes, oh, see, it's just a quota. He was just patronizing them. That's That's not how you want this to work. You want this to be the chance for somebody to get the interview and get the exposure. And if they are great, that they get hired just as they would, no matter who they are. Well, isn't that equally as wrong though? Doesn't that defeat sure. the purpose? Sure. And it, and it, it especially <clears throat> defeats the purpose 
if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, because that person may not be, there may be great candidates out there. You don't choose that particular great candidate. And now it makes the whole program look bad. I mean, Mike Tomlin with Pittsburgh has been a great head coach. He's been a very good head coach in the NFL now for, for a while. Marvin Lewis was a very good head coach with a team that didn't give him all that much, a lot of the time to work with. They're out there. They're out there. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.